Hello and welcome to the Working Tools Masonic Podcast, where today will be part two of our discussion of stewardship of our buildings. Ladies and gentlemen, brethren all, welcome to the Working Tools Podcast, a casual conversation around Freemasonry. First, it's important to note that our opinions and thoughts are our own and do not reflect those of our Grand Lodge or respective craft or concordant bodies. Please connect with us and ask questions, either here on YouTube or on our Facebook page. We'd also appreciate a thumbs up and especially any comments on our videos. Masonic Podcast, where we'll be discussing stewardship of the buildings uh, that our lodges meet in. I'm Matt Apple, a Mason here in the Grand Lodge of Washington, and with us today we have our usual hosts, uh, Worshipful Brother Stephen Chung, of the, who is a member of a lodge out in the Grand Lodge of British Columbia and Yukon, uh, very Worshipful Brother David Colbeth, a member of a lodge here in Washington, and very Worshipful Brother Chris Haynes, who in addition to being a, a Mason here in Washington, is the chairman of the Grand Lodge Real Estate Advisory Committee for the Grand Lodge of Washington. Uh, thanks again for being with here with us, Chris. Thank you for having me. Um, so last time we, we started sort of discussing broad strokes about um, whether or not a lodge should own a building and, and sort of the importance of that. Um, and so we sort of delved down over time and we kind of left it on the idea of uh, reserves for various purposes. And uh, we talked about building inspections and being prepared for roofs specifically, but what are some other sort of issues that, that frequently come up and you guys experience, again, as building owners, as well as members of lodges that own buildings, more specifically, uh, <laughs> that lodges need to, or temple boards need to consider and set money aside for? Go for it, Chris. Oh, um, well. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> throw, throw you under the building. Oh, throw <laughs> me under the bus. building. <laughs> well, you know, um, there any aspects of the physical aspect of the building um, are uh, are things that you should you know save for and reserve for. We touched on that in our last episode, but some other things to think about too is uh, what kind of legal resources uh, do you want to have money set aside for? Um, insurance and Stephen, it sounds like that that's kind of a hot button in your world, and and uh, hope that you talk a little bit more about that. Um, but believe it or not. Uh, also having money set aside for brokerage. And what I mean by that is if you typically will have two different kinds of building configurations for most lodges. Some will be a single use building. They have a big assembly hall, maybe they have a dining room, maybe they have a kitchen, um, but it's pretty much gonna be used for like a whole bunch of different events at different times. I know some lodges uh, do like bank quinceaneras, kinds of, uh, you know, big activities and that sort of thing. They kind of function, they function kind of like a church or some kind of a yeah. community center. It's single purpose. They don't have any other, maybe a single story or whatever. Exactly. And then other lodges uh, will maybe have some commercial space uh, available uh, within their building uh, footprint. And my lodge has that up in Bothell. Uh, where we have two commercial spaces on the main floor, we have cell towers on the top of the building, 
And uh, we actually generate uh, steady monthly income from the commercial properties down there. But I also know some lodges that do an excellent job in renting out their assembly halls for events and, and uh, are very successful at it. And even some others that I've also uh, heard of are branching out and um, upgrading their kitchens to a commercial kitchen status and renting out the kitchens for food trucks and uh, other food preparation vendors out there and are branching out their income opportunities. Yeah. Um, so uh, these, this is your typical configuration, you know, two different kinds of scenarios. And um, uh, David, um, I believe that your building uh, does a lot of a, like banquets and assembly work. And in fact, you partnered with um, somebody who actually has a website and has a whole package where they rent that building out on a consistent basis. And they actually um, handle that entire process from soup to nuts, don't they? Well, we, we did. Uh, you did, past we, tense, okay. We did, and uh, he actually decided he didn't want to do that anymore. So uh, like most Masons that can't say no, I, uh, or maybe didn't step backwards fast enough, I'm, I, I handle that role now actually as rental manager. Uh, for but yes, we do a pretty steady, a steady outside. We call them outside rentals. Uh, the person that we're talking about, Kyle Grafstrom, we actually may have him on the show at some point in the future. He actually did wrote a book about uh, masonry in the Wild West, and so uh, at some point we've we've got a long docket of people that we want to have on the show, and uh, at some point we'd like to have him on. But he actually manages the Kent Masonic Call, as well as I think Des Moines Masonic Call and Renton Masonic Call, and in another non-Masonic venue. He has a, a, a business that he does that with. And yeah, Kent, I was going to mention that Zane McCune, who is a member of the Kent Masonic Hall there and Verity Lodge, they do a, a, a booming business. They're a single story, single use type building, exactly what you're talking about. Uh, but they rent that Friday, Saturday, Sunday, every weekend, every day. It's, it's actually hard for them to do any other rentals in that building. Uh, for example, we were at the rainbow, Matt and I were talking about, we were at a rainbow event today on a Sunday. It's just a little bit different, but that was one of the only days that were available in that hall uh, to have. And cause they, and, and they rent it for a lot of money. They've done a great job with the upkeep and of the maintenance and of they're doing continual pr uh, process improvements to that building. I don't know what the numbers are, but they're significant tens of thousands tens and tens and tens of thousands of dollars in revenue. Uh, they make as much or more than if they had a first floor with retail. So in our building, we're, we're similar. We have a 7,000 square foot floor plant footprint. And uh, on the, so on the first floor, we have about 6,000 or so square feet of rentable space and it is all currently rented. And we're trying, one of the, one of the problems has been a very large space didn't have a continual in, uh, increases in lease amounts over the last 30 years. And so they're paying significantly below market rates. But we just, starting in January, just started, just finally got them bumped up a little bit. And with the understanding they're going to continue to have incremental increases over the next time. And we carved out a little space for another tenant that we've had in there for the last year. And then he's leaving, but a new tenant just came in. I think things happen as if by magic. And we have a new tenant that's going to take over that space. And uh, so, and then the, the last, we have a, we have actually a four, a three spaces down there. And a third one is, has been rented and they're about halfway through their five-year lease 
uh, and it is pretty close to market rates, which are relatively low for Auburn, but uh, it's an old 1920s building and it hasn't been upgraded. So, but then we do rent the upstairs. We have lots, we have nine, <laughs> we have nine organizations plus a church that meets in our building. And I still do uh, our numbers last year were about $16,000 in outside rentals that I did last year. So uh, we're doing pretty well on the income side. We just spent over the last five years or so, uh, it's approximately $300,000 in, not spent, I shouldn't say. We've had about $300,000 worth of work done to our building for re- as a restoration project. And the building was changed in the 50s to the old steel and cheap glass storefronts. And so we just had them restored to the 1920s uh, Douglas fir, beautiful double pane windows. And uh, it, it's really a beautiful job. But a couple of our members stepped up and went through, did all the paperwork and all the process to get that done. We were able to take advantage of some amazing grants that were available through the city as well as through the county. I think out of that 300000 or so, we only spent about fifty to $70,000, $75,000 to get all that done. So it was an amazing opportunity. So I'd highly recommend anybody out there that needs to do improvements, check with your local municipalities, check with your county, your development groups, ask around. There's probably grants and things available, even for painting, even as simple as painting. Uh, So definitely check with them for grants. But also don't spend a lot of time spinning your wheels on grants. Make sure that the building is profitable. And uh, as Chris was starting to talk about that single use versus retail use, I think we're just about to get into some of that retail ability. Uh, are leases current? Are the, the, is the income, is it, is it marketable income? You know, if, if it's not check and you don't know, just like you would inspect the property, have an inspector come out and have an inspection done hire a commercial broker, hire a property manager to come out and say, hey, can you evaluate this interior of the building and tell me what it would be worth to rent? What should I be charging right now? Well, what- that, and that, that's one of yeah. the things that we, uh, are, pardon me, the Holding Society decided to do. We had a tenant change uh, or leave, and um, we were well below current market and mm-hmm. didn't really realize it, I suppose, uh, from what I understand, They hired a uh, a property manager to lease the space for us, and they got us several dollars more per square foot than we were getting before. Yes, we paid a huge fee for them to do that and put the person in there, but you only pay that fee once, and I guess once that lease is done, um, at least then we're at a better market rate than we were because we didn't realize that we were several dollars per square foot below market. Right? Yeah. So there's some real benefits to hiring the, the right people. Yeah. And if you just keep those rates moving upward with the market, uh, you can, it's, it's relatively easy to get a new analysis done to understand where the number should be and not have to do a full, okay, we haven't done this in 50 years. How much should we be charging? Uh, or, or if, if you have a tenant that has, doesn't have a lease, uh, what are your, what are your, what's your legal position if they'd stop paying the lease? You know, having that legal team, having a good broker, property manager, attorney, having all those professionals at your fingertips is critical. And I think yeah. you guys having that committee in Washington for lodges to look to for support when they have to deal with these things for the first time and, and are not very aware. I think that's great. So, 
uh, just to, to step back a second to the, the uh, topic of the set-asides that we're not, I don't know what you want to call them, the sinking funds, the money that the Temple Board is setting aside for expenses. We sort of talked about um, physical things to the building, and uh, Chris was talking about uh, uh, legal and potential other professional expenses. And I think you guys sort of hit on one without actually mentioning it, which is, it, it seems to me, as, as a, and again, as a member of a lodge that does not own its own building, that if your tenants just go out of business or, your, um, or their lease expires and they decide to move or they retire or whatever it is, and suddenly you have you know, half or all of your rental space is empty, it's, you're still going to need to keep the heat on and the lights on. And if that rental was supporting your, your lodge room upstairs, you're going to need to have some money set aside to, to, um, to keep the show running, essentially. So, uh, Absolutely. And you want to uh, um, plan very generously, potentially, for that what's called a vacancy, right? Uh, it can take a while to load a commercial space with a property. And um, a rule of thumb that we've used in our lodge is, do we comfortably have a year worth of rent set aside in, you know, for, for that particular rental to give us the space to be able to uh, have another uh, tenant come in? And that doesn't even include the brokerage cost um, by hiring a professional broker to load that space. So Chris, you're breaking up a little bit. You said a, a year, you, you plan for about a year's worth of rental income just in case there's a long-term vacancy or a little more hard to get finding a new tenant to replace that? Correct. And, um, and I, I was going to ask, if you want to stab in the dark at the gray area between the lines in our code, <laughs> our, our, our constitutions of Washington that, uh, as they say, the code is silent in that area, talking about what, how much can a can a, should a temple board have? I mean, that's just rental income if they're losing rental income. But what, what if they have a building that needs some maintenance? Or how, how do you know how much to set aside? Now, we talked about in the previous show getting an inspector out to give you an idea of, of the quality and condition of your roof and what, what other elements might an inspection include? Um, uh, they, they could be looking at the, you know, what are the different components of the interior of the property, for instance, you know, the condition of the carpeting, flooring, like that. Life is expected in what you currently have for any major component. Um, uh, it's really hard for a lot of brothers that are trying to help manage a building to look at it from the perspective of a commercial um, mm -hmm. uh, property. A lot of people's reference point is for their own homes. Um, or if they belong to, say, like a condominium or a homeowners association. Uh, people who live in condominiums uh, that have reserve studies um, get that concept actually pretty well, especially if they're active on their boards. Yeah, for sure. Uh, there are some condo owners that don't participate and they don't have a clue. But people who actually work on a, on a homeowner association board actually will have point in understanding the power of good reserves. Um, they obviously understand special assessments. People sometimes hear about that, but that's where it's a sudden cash infusion by every member of that association to feed into that to pay for a major uh, cost right away. Well, that's no different than for lodges that turn to their members and say, you know what, we need $1,000 from each member to be able to put 
a new roof on or, or whatever. I mean, some, some major outlay. Uh, that would be like a special assessment for each member of that lodge if they so chose and they didn't have the reserves in place uh, to do that. And just to kind of touch on a quick thing here, just to be really clear, these reserves, these, um, these capital funds, if you will, would not be in the temple. They would be kept in the lodge. Uh, the Temple Association at least for us, for best practices, only has enough cash on hand to cover um, typical taxes, insurance, operating costs, if you will, throughout the year. And so I just wanted to kind of throw that in there, at least from Washington Masonic Code, that we don't want to have large cash reserves building in our temple associations. Right, um, millions and millions and millions of dollars. That seems to get people in trouble when their bank accounts are flush like that. Well, and, and, and they lose sight of, of the purpose and the whole point of a title or holding corporation is to limit the liability just to that building. Yeah. Don't park all your cash in there. Just saying. Yeah. yeah. I, think, I think the rule of thumb has been basically a year, maybe as much as two years if you're doing a particular cash capital improvement that's going to be happening very quickly. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, just enough. I mean, but that can be significant. I mean, our, our building, it costs about 75 to $90,000 a year to run that building. And so there, there can be some significant funds that need to be spent, but those are spent. It's not just sitting around. It's usually a flow of money. <clears throat> right. And, and so that's why, uh, on your team of professionals, really good accounting is going to really be full. How do you analyze your income and expenses uh, for, for your uh, building association? Um, just to kind of clarify, too, for lodges, um, is to understand the difference between gross leases and triple net leases. And I touched a little bit on this. Some lodges uh, like to use gross leases because those are really easy to calculate. Give me, I'm making up a number here. Give me $3,000 a month, let you rent this space. And from that $3,000 a month, uh, we're going to cover our taxes, our rents, um, and our building maintenance, and all that kind of thing. The only problem is, though, is unless you bake in automatic leases into your gross lease from year to year, you can actually start eroding your income by not keeping up changing taxes and insurance and maintenance costs for your building. So... Um, I really have found that a good hedge, if you will, for those rising costs is to consider using what's called a triple net lease. A triple net lease is um, basically uh, t uh, the uh, commercial tenant spaces portion. Let's say they have 25% of the building. So they would have 25% of all the uh, tax costs for that property 25% of all the common area uh, maintenance costs of that building, oftentimes with a cap, and then 25% of the insurance costs of, of the old building. And um, that's a great way of forcing the building association to pay attention to its expenses on an annual basis because you have to provide an accounting of that to your commercial tenants to say, this is how your rents are now adjusting this year based upon these increased costs. And um, it's all about how you bake in active management of your building. Don't just sign a lease and fire and forget. And, you know, the checks keep cashing, it must be good. No, 
by having a, an ongoing process of actively reviewing those expenses, you won't let them get away from you. So everybody here has touched on that issue where all of a sudden there's a realization that, oh my goodness, we're not even near market rate on our rentals that we're charging. And I think when I first joined my building association, we were at 20% of market rate wow. on, our, on our rental rates. And I was just shocked because I, I have some of my own rentals personally, but it was just like, this is absolutely critical that this be analyzed. And, and, um, and so we went through a process of um, adjusting the rents, but also um, first getting new uh, uh, commercial tenants. Once the tenants that were, and, and this was ironic too, is that these tenants weren't even in their, their payments on time even at 20% of market rate. So they were wow. terrible tenants. Yeah. And, um, and as I always tell people, I says, you know, don't be sad when the end of a lease is coming up. It could be a great opportunity <laughs> to get a better tenant. I mean, or if you have a really good tenant, great, adjust it. They have increasing costs for their business. You have increasing costs for your business, of your bills. It's fair. And yeah. that's all this is. It's fair. And it's, and uh, Stephen, you touched on the fiduciary responsibility of a, of a building association that they have to their stakeholders. And absolutely, this is a critical piece that's overlooked and um, really uh, can't say enough about it in terms of active management of your buildings. Yeah, so one, of the, one of the things that they uh, uh, got into in their fiduciary duty was the insurance factor which, mm. of course, did have a dramatic effect on the overall cost of running the building. Once we bought the proper insurance, it cost a lot more. Um, you know, for example, director and officer's liability insurance. Um, mm -hmm. You know, when you realize that every member of your lodge belongs to the society that owns the lodge, every member of your lodge is equally responsible or liability wise. So then you look at the insurance factor uh, to make sure that you're covered for those things because theoretically, if you don't have the right insurance in place, uh, somebody slips and falls on the, on the sidewalk in front, uh, they could sue your lodge and every member of the lodge. And now, you know, all of us are on the hook legally. And so that's one of the reasons that started looking into it uh, was because that scenario was put forth. And sure enough, we were not properly insured. So all these years we've been doing business as, you know, it just continued on and nobody even thought of those things. So uh, another good thing to consider is that. So Stephen, to, to step back a topic for a second, um, the the other two guys were talking about how in here in Washington, the rule essentially is that you can't hold more than more or less a year's worth of expenses in the, the Temple Corporation. Is Does it work similarly in BC? Do you have to essentially turn over all the, the excess assets of the Temple Corporation to the, the owners at the end of the year? Or does it, do you know, how does that, how does that works up there? Uh, no, I don't believe they turn anything over. They have um, sustainability funds that are invested um, for the long-term uh, usage for the lodge, right? Um, 
I'm not exactly sure how they have that uh, structured, but uh, last report I heard we had, uh, I think, $300,000 in our, in our long-term investments uh, for the sustainability of the lodge. So uh, if we needed to, we could pull from that. Uh, and the, and does the lodge does the lodge own that, or does the Temple Corporation own that? Do you know, the, the Temple Corporation owns. Okay, that. really? Uh, yes. So the the holding society has all the marbles in their basket. Uh, the, the each lodge has members on the holding society, um, but they're they're not. Um, it's a separate entity. But just, just hypothetically, for the, the sake of argument, if the Temple Board ran a million-dollar profit one year and had all this money on hand, would they, and it was you know far in excess of what they foresaw for expenses for the foreseeable future, would they then hand that money back to the, the owners of the, the Temple Corporation, or would they hang on to it? And they would hang on to it for the Kelowna Holding Society to invest properly for future use. Interesting. So the, the building is not really a revenue source for the lodge then necessarily. No, actually it's not a revenue source for the lodge though. Um, <clears throat> in one sense it, it is that because it makes enough money to support itself, our lodges don't have to pay rent. Well, we do pay rent. We pay $1 per year per member. Right. Um, so we get a good deal on rent because we have, uh, the income from it but no it doesn't like if they run uh, well like for example now they're gonna make more money this year off of that one tenant um, we wouldn't see any of excess funds be distributed from the holding society it would just be put into the bank and invested for future use because I know I know that there there is a future plan eventually they'll sell our building and we'll buy into another property and, and do something different. Um, I know that the long-term community plan, community plan for Kelowna, um, there's going to be high rises probably where we are uh, in the long term. And it's just a matter of time until somebody puts enough dollars in front of, or zeros in after that dollar sign to get us to sell. Interesting. I, I know in this area, a lot of the lodges that own their own buildings through their temple board, the, the building is a revenue source for the lodge that the, at the, as the, the other guys were saying at the end of the year, the temple board is required to hand over essentially all the money in, in excess of their expectations for the coming year. And so a lot of those lodges say, you know, woohoo, we can, you know, that's you can keep our dues lower or we can do whatever uh, with this money. That's not necessarily related to the building at all. So I've, it's interesting. That's, that's so different up there. Yes. Yes. I, it, I, I think, it, I think it's smart um, uh, for future planning. Um, uh, it, it just makes total sense for where they uh, want to go. I mean, for example, the Eastern star wants us to put in an elevator uh, be, or, or to put in a new uh, chairlift, but where they want it, we can't do it. We can't upgrade our building. So eventually, they're going to, I mean, they're giving another push right now for us to try and figure another way to do it. But the fire, fire marshal has already said, no, we can't do it. So that'll be another bigger push for them to say, okay, time to sell our building and look at something else. 
it's it's interesting <clears throat> to hear <clears throat> excuse me to hear about the <clears throat> I'm sorry, I don't want to, it, it, interesting to hear too that you have two different or essentially three different groups that own the building together. And I know Chris is intimately involved, our committee, but mostly Chris, uh, intimately involved in a situation where we have in the part of our state that it's a similar situation, but one of the lodges is going away or wants to move. They don't want to be in that building anymore. They don't want to have that ownership anymore. And so I'd be curious to have you look, recommend that you look into your contracts and to your agreements amongst the membership of that Temple Corporation to, to make sure it's a clear uh, process for dissolution if necessary, which is unfortunately not so clear <laughs> in this one that Chris is working on or that we're working on. Uh, and we're finding that many lodges across the state that have similar boilerplate or template style contracts are kind of clear as mud and they're not very accurate or, or the, the process for dissolution or for uh, releasing that partnership is not as clear as it could be. That's a great there was another point. lodge in our area that had a, there was a building that was owned by two lodges that were members of the Temple Corporation and their corporation bylaws had an even number of representatives from each lodge. So there was never, there was no tiebreaker. There was no, like you were saying, Eastern Star has a seat on your, your Temple Corporation. Ours, the one that I'm thinking of, it was exactly even. There was, I think it was eight, it was eight or 10, I forget which, but it was, you know, so it was four and four. And so everything that came up was deadlocked and nothing ever happened. And they ended up losing the building. So it's a, uh, it's the dynamics of how the corporation is run are, are certainly very important for, for all of the parties concerned from the brothers to the, the Eastern star to heck just your tenants, right? If your building goes under, you, you're, you're affecting your community around you. And, uh, that can clearly be important. Yeah. And with that, uh, since I've made my point, I'm going to call the <laughs> call time here. Uh, we're, we approach the end of another half hour of the Working Tools Masonic podcast, and we want to again thank uh, very worshipful brother Chris Haynes of the uh, Grand Lodge of Washington Real Estate Advisory Committee. He's the of which he's the chairman, and David, I suppose, is on the committee too. We'll, we'll give him yeah. some credit. <laughs> and uh, and uh, on behalf of myself and Stephen and the, the two aforementioned people, uh, thank you very much for listening to our podcast. Thank you.